Welcome to episode three, God versus God, our first season Greco-Roman style. Andrew is with me. Hey. Hello. So we've heard in episode one, we heard Dionysus take on Mars. In our last episode, Demeter squared off against Cupid. So this episode, we're hoping third time is the charm and best of all. And Andrew, I hadn't told you this, but some listener response has already started to filter in. We've already getting some, oh, some nice. comments from, uh, from listeners. Uh, one, and I'm quoting here, one listener said, I immediately downloaded the pilot and left a five-star review. Then I actually listened to it. <laughs> I didn't read the rest of that. I'm sure it was glowing, but that's, yeah. uh, that's where I, I moved to other things. Um, also heard a few terms bandied about. Hilarious was one, which is nice. Informative also. Uh, and way, way too long. Now, I do take issue <laughs> with that, that third one. Uh, I respectfully disagree. We're covering a lot of ground here, and we're right. keeping it so far to these brisk 90-minute <laughs> time frames. So clearly this person has uh, very valuable time, yet not too much time to type the word way twice, way, right. way too long. So we'll take that with, uh, with a grain of salt. We'll wait till they hear about the new Batman movie. That's exactly right. Yeah, hope you got a comfortable chair. <laughs> well, folks, you know the rules at this point. If you are new to the game, a quick recap. Each episode, Andrew and I auditioned two ancient gods uh, to determine which of them might be the best suited to come out of retirement to save us from our current troubled times today. Uh, each of us will review one of these gods, and then we'll compare them against five categories. The winner of the episode gets the golden apple for the episode leading up to the season finale, where the ultimate victor will take away the golden goat to help us decide who will come back off the bench to save us from our troubled times. Yes. So once again, we have let the fates decide. We have uh, used our random God generator. And uh, we've, we've taken two pretty good ones this week. Uh, yeah. I'm going to talk about Apollo, the god of prophecy, and much, much more. Right. And Andrew's going to cover uh, Vulcan, the god of fire and the forge. So That's correct. It's, yeah, it's marquee matchup. Two Olympians, two of the original 12, a couple of heavyweights. So Yeah. You know, when we first did this, I sort of acted like, oh, this is a big reveal. But then I didn't think about this is the name of the actual yeah, but episode. They've actually clicked on a button that, that says that right yeah, there. So the spoilers are, are long gone. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> they, they know what's going on. No big reveal. No. Well, as always, uh, so that we hit that that crisp 90-minute time frame, let's jump right in. And uh, <laughs> as usual, may the best God win. So Apollo, God of prophecy, uh, best known to all of us as the owner-operator of the Oracle at Delphi, the place where the ancients would go to seek advice from the divine, to learn what fate had in store for them, to learn the truth. And that's certainly true. And even alone, that by itself places Apollo on the top of the shelf in the Greco-Roman tradition. But as we'll learn, it's only part of Apollo's story. He is, in fact, a veritable Swiss army knife of gods. Now, beyond prophecy, he's also the god of healing, of archery, music, and arts, sunlight, knowledge, herds and flocks, and protection of the young. Among many, many others. That's just, that's the, the first list. He is a jack of all trades. He is. And, but and yet master at all of them. I mean, wow. they're incredibly adept at every one of these categories, which we'll learn. It's very, very impressive. So not only was he known for these things, he invented many of the categories themselves. So wasn't just great at music. He kind of invented it. He wasn't just great at archery. It was kind of his thing. So wow. he was something of a Renaissance man. Uh, or or the Renaissance. Been. It, I was going to say, he would have been if he were a man, and yet he was a god, and the Renaissance had not yet been invented. So he was, he was even inventing that before its time. 
Uh, Apollo, definitely among the most important of the gods, certainly the most among the most complex. And what I didn't know, he's also the most Greek of all the gods. He is truly like the Greek national deity. He is more Greek oh. than, than pretty much everything. Greeker than Gyros, Zorba, Giannis, big fat yeah. wings. <laughs> Greekest of the Greek, you name it, he's there. And we talk about this sometimes where the Greeks and the Romans will often have kind of two different versions of their gods, two different names. Yep. You got Dionysus as Bacchus, you got Ares and Mars can be kind of the same figure. Uh, not so with Apollo. There's just one Apollo. You get Apollo, you ask anybody, they're going to say, that's Apollo, Greek, Roman, right. miscellaneous. There was a brief period where some of the Roman poets tried to call him Phoebus. Uh-huh. But it, it never stuck. You know, yeah. with a, something as, as glorious as Apollo cannot be summed up with a name as, as flaccid as Phoebus. It's never quite worked. So Apollo is Apollo. So let's get to his origin story. He was the son, of course, of Zeus and Leto. Now, we all know Zeus. God of gods, big kahuna. His mother, Leto, a little bit less familiar. Uh, she's best known, in fact, for just being Apollo's mother. Um, right. But the model of Apollo and, and his twin sister, Artemis, the goddess of the hunt. So the two of them were quite the dynamic duo. Uh, Leto is the second best known pure mother in mythology, next to Demeter, whom you covered in our previous episode. Right. So a couple of, of well-known mothers there. Now, Leto is... is often described as kind of matronly, very demure, very quiet, very mild, but she has a certain hidden beauty that catches the eye of Zeus. Not that it's terribly hard to catch the eye of Zeus. We know his, <laughs> his, eyes, his, yeah, his eyes wandering. <laughs> to say the least. Uh, but still, he, he finds that quiet beauty. They have their courtship. And once Leto is with child, carrying Apollo and Artemis, of course, Hera finds out. Now, astute listeners to the show will remember Hera as a recurring figure She's the, the wife and the sister of Zeus, kind of a complicated arrangement, but, right. uh, but really fueled by jealousy and always trying to, to complicate matters in the name of that jealousy. So Hera finds out that Zeus and Leto have gotten together, that Leto is expecting, and she gets that rage, that jealousy that comes across. She does not come across well at all in this episode, by the way. So keep that in <laughs> mind. We, we've, heard, we've heard some pretty rough stuff before, but right. boy, this, is, this is hitting bottom for her. So Hera, in her jealousy, she bans Leto from giving birth on terra firma, on solid ground. Not that she can't give birth, but you just can't do it on solid ground. That's the right. rule. Well, uh, sharks with laser beams. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's, it's very specific. It's, a, <laughs> it's very, very articulate. So Leto seeks shelter in many lands. She tries many places, but everybody rejects her because, frankly, everyone's still afraid of rubbing Hera the wrong way. She's right. got a bit of a temper. Uh, and yet Apollo saves the day. I know what you're thinking. Apollo is still in the right. womb. And yes, yeah. he is. But from the womb, he is already advising his mother. I'll tell you what, mom, there is a floating island called Delos, the middle of the Greek islands. It is neither land nor sea. It's a floating island. And Leto yeah. says, okay, thank you, son to be. Uh, lands on Delos. And sure enough, it's exactly what he prescribed it to be. So they land, they let her give birth. And Apollo is already giving valuable guidance, giving directions before he's even born. So really impressive from the start. The birth takes place. All the goddesses come around. They're all present for the birth, except, of course, for Hera, who boy, true to to form. Was not invited. Nope, nope. Uh, And Apollo comes out, and he's born clutching a golden sword, which I imagine from a childbirth perspective must have been (laughs) rather uncomfortable. let alone twins, is going to be challenging for anybody. But uh, once weaponry gets involved, yeah. look out. So 
But Apollo shows up in grand form. He arrives. Everything on Delos turns to gold. The island is filled with this lovely ambrosial fragrance. Swans circle the island seven times. The nymphs sing in delight. He makes a big entrance. The other goddesses come around. They wash him clean. They cover him in a nice white garment. And they fasten these golden bands around him. A little bit of sort of baby, baby jewelry, baby bling. He's very, very stylish, even for minute one. Uh, his mother, Leto, cannot feed him. So Themis, who's the goddess of divine law, she steps in and gives him ambrosia, which is the nectar of the gods, which makes people divine. And as soon as he tastes that, Apollo breaks free of his bonds and he makes three declarations. He said, I will become the master of the lyre, which is a musical instrument, kind of an old fashioned harp. Uh I will become the master of archery and I will interpret the will of Zeus to all of humankind. Remember, he's like 10 minutes old. (laughs) He just... So very ambitious from a very, very early age. I know people in their 40s who have not accomplished any of these yes. things. Uh, and there he is just making these yeah. statements. The goddesses are all very impressed by the entrance, by, by the fortitude, the confidence. They're also confused because the lyre has not been invented yet. Archery <laughs> is not yet a thing. Um, but Apollo will take care of all that in due time. So Zeus appears. He's calmed Hera. He's, he shows up on the scene, gives his son a golden headband which is going to become part of Apollo's signature look. And after the birth, after Apollo was born, the floating island of Delos becomes fastened to the earth. It becomes a sacred place for Apollo okay. forevermore. So it, it's sort of his gift back is this floating island gets its, its purchase upon the earth as kind of an early gift. Yeah. Okay. So I will, I got to hand it to twi- his twin sister, Artemis. She deserves some credit. Now she arrives first among the two twins. Okay. Uh, in some traditions, she actually assists her mother with the birth of Apollo. So again, very precocious, hours old and already providing significant value, significant overachievers, both of them. So very impressive to both of those. Uh, The early years. So they start working together as a child. uh, Apollo builds an altar right there on Delos using the horns from the goats that his sisters hunted down. So they've got a good partnership going. And it's going to these building skills are going to form his reputation. He's going to become sort of an authority on construction, will be the god of building new cities, among other things. Uh, when he's a little bit older, his dad sets him up with a new ride. So Zeus gives him a golden chariot drawn by swans. Much better than the 1979 Chevy Chevette that I received <laughs> as a 16-year-old, which never left the garage, not once. Um, but Apollo was, again, more ambitious as a child, I think, than I was. So he yeah. probably earned it. So he's getting a little older. He's laying the groundwork. He's working that to-do list that he said he would at the age of 10 minutes. He invents the lyre, this this ancient harp. He, he, uh, with his sister, he invents archery. So they turn that into a sport. He also starts teaching people how to heal. So as if being a great musician is not enough, being a great, you know, athlete as an archer is not enough. He starts doing some subtle doctoring on the side. Just right. to work that in. Very impressive. Every mother's dream so far. Uh, Apollo's grandmother, Phoebe is also taken by her, her grandson, gives him the shrine at Delphi, his ultimate landing place as a birthday gift. Um, so he's set up for his best known role, the God of prophecy to be, this is his, his, his pad. And that's the gift. And he says, thank you, grandma, but I'm not, I'm not ready for it yet. Huh? I got some, I got some scores to settle. So this is where the story gets a little dark. What's become, what's been a sunny story of childhood takes a bit of a turn. Right. So uh, the Oracle of Delphi had a previous guardian and it was Python, who is this big serpent dragon monster. Right, He's been running the out. place for some time. Yeah. Well-named. And it turns out when Apollo's mother, Leto, was pregnant, Hera did more than just give her the old curse about not giving birth on terra firma. She also sent Python, the snake monster, to hunt her to death. Oh. 
So I, I gave the impression earlier, it was just more of an inconvenience, but the hero was, right, was right. taking it to the next level, sending this monster uh, to hunt her down. Now, Python does not, is not able to kill Leto, but he does unfortunately assault her pretty badly before the birth. And so Apollo knows this. And his earliest opportunity in his childhood, he avenges the harm against his mother. He hunts down Python. And right there, right in the sacred cave of Delphi, with his bow and arrow, kills him. Not just a bow and arrow, in fact. Right. It's the sacred bow and arrow given to him by Vulcan, ah. who uh, will appear in the second segment yes. of this episode. Yes, so he will. He's using that, his counterpart. He's using that weapon to get Python. Now, there are differing accounts as to how old Python is when he kills, or I'm sorry, how old Apollo is when he kills Python. Some say he's still a baby, so very much overachieving. Some say he's a little bit of more of a young adult. But what a son to his mother, either way, coming, coming at that young age right. and avenging that terrible act. So he's exacted his revenge and he goes to Zeus, his father. And he says, because I've done this, I would like to always be the best at divining the future. I want other people can do it, but I want to be the best. And Zeus agrees. He says, that's, that's fair. You can have that, but there's a catch. <laughs> always. Now, Apollo, of course, had understandable motivation to kill Python. And yet he did commit a blood murder. And even though Apollo is God, there's still a price to be paid when, when you're a murderer. So he does need to pay that price. So Python's mother, Gaia, uh, wants Apollo sent to Tartarus, which is the underworld, the, the hell of the time, right. and asks Zeus for that punishment. And Zeus doesn't agree, um, considering the full picture, but he does cast Apollo out of Olympus, and he instructs his son to get purified. So Apollo takes it seriously. He becomes a slave for nine years, and he really does hard labor to atone for this sin of blood murder against the monster that assaulted his mother. And at the end of it, he does his time. He's purified in a ritual from Zeus himself and finally returns back to Delphi. Gaia hands over custody of the Oracle once and for all after having done this time. Now, being the class act that he is, some accounts say that Apollo, when given the keys to the, uh, the temple, establishes the Pythian Games, named after the late Python, wow. as a little bit of a thank you to Gaia, his mother. He's like, you know, sorry, I killed your snake monster son. <laughs> But he did assault my mom and in my defense. You know. Anyway, please enjoy these second tier Olympics as a, as a token <laughs> of my appreciation. There you go. But it's an important experience because Apollo becomes the one who learns that when you commit a sin, you've got to pay for it. And then you can purify others. Right. And that's what becomes part of his mission. He makes men aware of their guilt, aware of what they've done wrong. And he's there to purify them. So if you listen really closely, you can almost hear the early notes of Roman Catholicism starting to take shape. <laughs> The whisper of guilt in the wind. Uh, yeah, still not fully formed, but it's, it's coming. So the deed is settled. Apollo returns to Delphi, but there's really nobody there. Uh, Python hasn't run it really well. So he needs to recruit people yeah. to live there, to work there. He sees a ship sailing so, from... Puts the new, under new management sign out. That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. The new boss, the sheriff in town. <laughs> so he sees a ship coming in from Crete. He does what a god does, turns himself into a dolphin, springs aboard, and he must have been a very charming dolphin because... The crew is awed into submission. They say, Dolphin, we will go wherever you'd like. And he sends them to, to Delphi, sets them on a course. So eventually he reveals himself to be Apollo. All the crew members are very impressed. They're recruited into his service. They accept him. He's so convincing. He may even be at this point, the early, early days God of marketing, uh, <laughs> using a mascot, using uh, just a, a good stunt to get folks on his side. Uh, and this, as an added bonus, makes uh, Apollo in time, the patron saint of sailors, keeping them safe on their journeys. Uh, Jason and the Argonauts and others owe a lot of, of their journey safety to him. So he's at Delphi, and I can't 
I can't overstate how important the temple of Delphi was at that time. It's under this towering mountain marked Parnassus. It's considered really the center of the world. There's no, there's no shrine like it. You've got pilgrims coming, not just from Greece, but from all over. Everybody who wants to consult it to know the will of the divine, know what's going to happen in the future, and more importantly, know the truth. Right. And this is important because you know no false word ever passes the lips of Apollo. He is, he's the god of light because of that, because he's only truth and only light. And he's the proprietor, but he does some delegating. He's got priestesses who do most of the work. He's good yeah. management material that way. Yeah. Uh, so the, the priestess will come. She'll sit in like a three-legged stool by a cleft of the rock, There's a special vapor that comes up. And then the pilgrim poses a question and the priestess goes into something of a trance, a, a Delphic frenzy, if you will, okay. to coin a phrase, uh, and channel the truth. So then we'll, we'll get to the heart of what the divine says. We'll convey that. Now, of course, the Oracle is going to play a role in a lot of mythical stories uh, Apollo is really just a minor character in a lot of them, kind of like Cupid in, in our last episode. Right. He runs the joint, he runs the show, he owns the place. <laughs> but ultimately, yeah. it's it's the Oracle that just kind of sets the plot in motion. So he does still retain a, this powerful symbolism of being this link between God and man. And even though he's, you know, every God has a, has a good side and a dark side, because he's coming from a place of purification, his power to reveal the truth, his power to show people the will of the divine and do that in a sincere way makes him, I think, mostly good. And that's what you'll hear about Apollo in the grand scheme of things is on the mm-hmm. whole, give or take a few violent episodes, pretty <laughs> good guy. Now on another violent episode, uh, okay. as a footnote to his youth. So Hera, not to be fully vanquished, gives one more try to, uh, to exact. Yeah, she's persistent. Arm. She's very, nothing if not persistent. It's kind of right. a jam. So she sends a giant, Titios, to once again hunt down Leto, poor Apollo's mother, and the soldier. Mm-hmm. Now, Apollo won't have it. He's had enough of this. So he joins up with Artemis. They both attack the giant with giant arrows and his golden sword. And after the battle, they talk Zeus into saying, look, these guys need to be punished. This is enough. You know, this, we can't let these guys, we can't let Hera keep sending these villains toward our mother. So Zeus agrees. He sends this giant to the underworld and does the classic, early part of the classic punishment, pegs him to the rock floor covering nine acres and institutes the old standby, a pair of vultures feasting uh-huh. daily on his liver. So that's what the giant has to pay as a price for that. That's and you favorite. can imagine, yeah, and you can imagine Apollo and Artemis at this point having some frustrations about old Aunt Hera, you know, just <laughs> it's getting old. So if any time you ever, you ever have any kind of feelings about your aunts or even your uncles, just remember, and maybe this is a message to my future, nieces and nephews, all 14 or 15 of them, when you're listening to this down the road, it could be worse to go easy on old Uncle Matt. It's not that bad. So I mentioned Apollo's protector of the young, and he's, he's known by that. He becomes this nurturer, this educator. He oversees the education of the youth. Uh, by some accounts, he even in many ways invents education. And it becomes the custom that when boys get to a certain age to become a man, they cut their long hair and devote it to Apollo. That's kind of their little ritual for him. And his mentorship is legendary. He mentors future kings. He saves children from death. He passes on knowledge and everything from the medicine that he invented to the language of birds. And of course, his core curriculum, how to predict the future. And because of that connection with the youth, he's often depicted that way. He's very young himself, very handsome, beardless, bow in his hand. Usually he's got a liar with him, typically nude, um, as it should be. Although later on in, in later eras, as they get a little bit more uptight, he's, he's kind of got a cloak or some kind of robe. Uh, but a real good, handsome physical specimen by all accounts with that sort of youthful sheen. Now, one thing about Apollo is he's not crazy about hubris. 
Hubris, of course, that uh, that quality of being excessively prideful, full right. of overconfidence, arrogance, uh, and this this gets to some of the darker elements of, of Apollo's personality. And he takes he takes hubris very seriously. He's offended by it. This and is where the vengeance comes in. That's right. The that's wrath. right. So so Niobe, who's the queen of Thebes, shows some great hubris in front of Apollo, boasting that she is superior to Leto, Apollo's mother. Again, just everyone's walking on this poor gal. Because Niobe has 14 children, seven boys, seven girls, where Leto has only the two. Yeah. Well. Now, we should point out the two, pretty extraordinary. Right. Really very, very accomplished. But some people prize quantity over quality. <laughs> Niobe is one of those. Not only that, but she doubles down. She mocks the appearance of Leto's children, saying Apollo looks effeminate and Artemis looks manly. And Leto, for all of her gentleness, for all of her, her sort of maternal caring qualities, she's heard enough. And in a move that is like pure mob boss, she just instructs her kids to kill the whole family. Just says, you know, follow Artemis. You take seven, you take seven. Let's get it done. And because they're devoted to their mother, they do exactly that. So Apollo takes the boys, Artemis takes the girls, and seven work. and seven. Wipes them out. Quick work. And that is the power of hubris. You know, if uh, Plato says, you know, you can, you can send a serpent dragon after me. You can send a giant. We can work something out. But you start to insult my children. Forget it. You're done. It's over. Yeah. Family. Yeah. Now we got to mention Apollo is a great warrior as well. Famous role in the Trojan war. Although surprisingly, even though he is the most Greek of gods, he actually sided with the Trojans in the Trojan war, not the Greeks. So he oh. was a surprising choice there. Um, but he Greek King Agamemnon earlier captures Chryseis, who's the daughter of Apollo's priest, Chrysus, and refuses to return her. So Apollo is not happy about how the king is treating his right-hand man, he actually infects his arrows with the plague Ooh. and shoots them into the Greek encampment to spread some disease among the troops. And this is effective. The group of the Greeks get sick. King, they give her up, they send her back, which causes what's known as the anger of Achilles, which of course becomes the theme of the Iliad. Right. And sets in motion the entirety of the Trojan War, which I'm sure had we not this crisp 90-minute time limit, we would <laughs> be able to go into much more detail about. We'll save that for subsequent yeah. well, episodes. It- but of course, come up in the second half. It will. Oh, okay. Very good. Foreshadowing. Yeah. Unintentional. Yeah. Good. So ultimately, Apollo causes the death of Achilles by guiding that arrow from Paris into the heel of Achilles, which of course is where we get the Achilles heel, the point mm-hmm. of weakness. So some, some little seeds in there that will foreshadow other stories, but let it be known that he had a key role in that war. And in many other wars, fought the Indians on behalf of Dionysus. Right. Number of number of battles where he was very successful. So all that said, a, d- a discussion of Apollo is not complete without talking about his musical prowess. Now, we mentioned that he had invented the lyre. We mentioned that he would, you know, he, he invented, invented music. string music. Invented, yeah, string music specific. Maybe not, maybe not all of music, but string music okay. is a tribute to him. Uh, he's a frequent companion of the muses. He becomes their chorus leader. He's also the god of banquets and a working musician. So he actually will play at weddings. In fact, I did not know this, but the, the wedding of Cupid and Psyche recounted in episode two, right. Apollo was the entertainment. He was the wedding band. So he came in nice. and uh, did a few numbers. Uh, he also, to take it back to episode one, he would perform at the, the Bacchanals, the Dionysus wine-soaked three-day festivals. Apollo would show up, play a few sets. So the guy oh, was nice. everywhere. Yeah, but... Performances aside, it was really the musical contests, I think, to get to the heart of Apollo. That can really combine like his divine musical talent with his hatred for hubris of those who would dare challenge him. Right. Um, the earliest of these, Pan, who's, of course, the god of nature, 
he challenges Apollo, blows on his little pipe, thinks he sounds pretty good, thinks, you know, I, I'm satisfied with that. I sound yeah, good. Yeah, I'm, I'm also a god. Yeah, it is, yeah, he is the god of, of nature, and he's playing the pipes of Pan. So he, he, he challenges Apollo to a music contest. Apollo begrudgingly accedes. He plays one stroke on his, on his lyre. The contest is over. One, <laughs> one note does it. Everybody says, Apollo, you're the winner. And Apollo, to get Pan back at some of his hubris, turns his ears into the ears of a donkey. He's like, because you thought you sounded so good, Pan, now you have donkey ears to go with your other animalistic <laughs> Yes. Which will sound like a mild punishment compared to the next story, where a satyr, half man, half goat, named Marcius, he finds a flute, again, plays it, thinks he sounds great, and it challenges Apollo to a contest to be judged by the muses themselves. Now, that's, that's sort of hubristic enough, but he takes right. it up a notch and he just starts taunting Apollo before the contest even starts, which is not a great idea. He taunts him for having long hair, for having a fair face, smooth body, and for having skill in so many arts, which is a really strange that's a, that's taunt. taunt. You're so good at so many things, like burn. Uh, strange taunt. all the time. Yeah, but Apollo says, all right, man, let's, let's on, it's on, let's do it. So they set the rules. Each will take a turn displaying his skills. And the winner of the contest can, quote, do whatever he wants with the loser. So the stakes are very high. So the first round they both play, turns out Marcy is pretty good, and it ends in a tie. And they say, let, the, the muses say, let's go to round two. And Apollo says, okay, I'll tell you what. I'm going to add my melodious voice while I play my harp. And Marcy says, no, that's not fair. You can't, you can't do both. And Apollo says, well, you needed to blow air to play your flute which is kind of like singing. So either we both get to use our skills or no one can use your breath at all. The muses say, it's a good argument. We've got to go with it. So he plays and sings, mesmerizes the crowd, does Apollo, and is declared the victor. There's a variation of the story where Apollo actually, instead of singing and playing, actually plays his, his harp upside down and is still better than the other guy, which is also very impressive. So he's the victor. He beats Marcius the satyr, and as the punishment, remember he can do whatever he wants to the losers. Right. As the punishment, he has the satyr flayed, so slowly skinned alive, and the skin is then hung from a tree to remind the others, "Don't mess with a god. Check your hubris at the door." Yeah, Oof. they paid the price on that one. This, it, it, this reminds me a lot of the. Uh, do you remember the devil went down to Georgia? Charlie Daniels yes. band, but yeah. yeah. It's a much different ending. I think Johnny <laughs> is the challenger beats the devil in that one. Right. Uh, much more graphic. I've always thought, though, the devil kind of gets robbed and the devil went down to George. Like, I think his, his solo is actually better. It's a little more inventive. Yeah. Takes some more creative risks. That was my favorite part. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So I always felt bad. I guess I have literally sympathy for, for the devil in that <laughs> one. Yeah. Uh, a word on love. Of course, Apollo has this beautiful, very talented, accomplished creature. Many lovers in his day. Queens, princesses, nymphs, you name it. And he, he experiences all the, the mythological erotic classics. And he takes a, takes a couple of shots from Cupid's arrow, impregnates the occasional lover while taking the form of a snake, just like the old man right, used to. Yeah. Uh, he takes some male lovers as well over the years, the most notably, uh, notably Hyacinthus, uh, who was killed by the errant throw of a discus and turned into a flower, which is where we okay. get the hyacinth. But that did right. not work out well for those two young men, uh, sadly. No. Uh, but Apollo hates to choose. And the best example of that, he falls in love with all nine muses at once <laughs> and insists on seeing them all in perpetuity. And as a result, he, he has never married, but has an erotic life that lasts with all nine muses for, for many, many years. Despite being a, a bachelor on paper, 
However, he sires many children. Uh, he's got a lot of famous children who were celebrities in their times. There's bards, there's muses, there's seers, of course, in the family business, high priests, founders of cities, you name it. Um, also well known as Apollo for his failed love affairs, most notably Cassandra, who's the daughter of Hecuba and Priam. He wants to court Cassandra, kind of puts the moves on her. She says, she will allow it on one condition. Give me the power also to see the future. So Paul is really smitten by her. So he grants the wish. He says, okay, yeah. you can do that. She gets the favor, but then goes back on her word and rejects him anyway. Now he's angry about this, but, and yeah. I did not know this until this week, once a God bestows a personal favor, they can't take it back. So Cassandra okay, is yeah. stuck with this ability and Apollo can't do anything. No take backs. No take backs in the mythological world. Yeah, okay. so it can't be revoked, but Apollo being the clever sort that he is, he gives her an extra curse. He says, okay, even though you'll be able to see the future, nobody that you tell about it will believe you. And that's what happened to Cassandra right. for the rest of her days. So she sees, she knows in the Trojan War that that giant horse. Yeah, dead, don't do it. Nobody listens okay. to her. Nope. She, she sees the future. She knows that Athena is going to get sacked in her own temple. Nobody believes her. So that's where we get the term Cassandra today. Somebody who is right. adept at predicting something, but listened to by no one. Yeah, see, I, I didn't know that about you know her from the Trojan War, but I did know, not know that's where it came from. Yeah, that's right. Well, so Apollo, Apollo, he wins some, he loses some, but you can't have you can't have blame the guy for for not trying. Right. Uh, one final item on Apollo's resume, and I, I should have mentioned this earlier: Olympic gold medalist, which normally would be the top line of your resume. Yeah. Uh, the first Olympics, in fact, so the very first Olympic Games, he faced off against uh, Ares, Mars, if you like, the god of war, in wrestling which I assume would be Greco-Roman style right? Of course, and defeated yeah. him. Yeah. So he was the Olympic champion in wrestling. Apollo was. Wow. And since he was having a good time, he decided on the spur of the moment to join what they used to call the race. They didn't have fancy varieties on races. <laughs> it was just the one race. Yeah. Just the, it was a simpler time. And he goes against Hermes, the, uh, another fellow Olympian God, the herald of the gods and right. beats Hermes in the race. So a double, double victor wow. wrestling and running. So course he wins both and and just the other notch in his belt of being the uh, original olympic gold medalist in both events wow so it's a lot to cover andrew uh we've we, we've we've tried to do justice with what i what i could in the time we've got uh of course best known apollo is the god of prophecy and truth but many things slayer of monster warrior educator protector loving son to his mother who really deserved better um, because his oracle was consulted before any city was formed, he's essentially a founding father of virtually every town in Greece right. at that time. And his biological prowess as a biological father of children is, is legendary. Lover of women, lover of men, Olympic athlete, right. celebrity children. He's like Bruce Jenner and Caitlyn Jenner all rolled into one. <laughs> but for our purposes, his role as a healer is probably the most compelling because on his own and eventually with his son, Asclepius, he becomes the ultimate force for healing. And in many cases, he is capable of delivering people from pandemics. So wow. really the ultimate skill set for what we're asking these gods to do for what we need now. So yes, Apollo had the dark side. While he educated children on one side, he would kill them when their mom got a little too <laughs> mouthy on the other. But in this particular instance, yes, he can cure pandemics. Now he does cause some of these pandemics. Right, he does, well. Yeah, he had, that, he had that too. So he's, he's kind of, you know, he's a little, little bit hit or miss, but yeah. ultimately with all those impressive abilities, with the ability to heal, I think he becomes a very compelling candidate for delivering us uh, to come off the bench and, and at least compete 
for the golden god. All right. So there we have it. There is Apollo in a nutshell. Very good. Excellent. So we'll uh, see how he stacks up once we get to Vulcan. We will. A formidable candidate. So uh, let's take a quick breather and we'll come back with Vulcan right after the break. All right. So we met Vulcan in our first episode, and Matt, uh, you said you were looking forward to him uh, because you said, and I quote, he was crafty, but also a little bit of a jerk. Oh, so you're quoting me, uh, not back to me now. Okay. <laughs> you back to you. Yes. All right. Uh, from his, his episode with Mars and Venus and uh, trapping them. So uh, here he is. And we will definitely find that he is very crafty. Mm. And at the end, we can decide how much of a jerk he really is. So. Indeed. Um, known as Hephaestus to the Greeks and Vulcan to the Romans. Uh, Vulcan was the god of fire, metalwork, crafts, uh, technology, volcanoes, um, especially in the Roman tradition uh, with volcanoes, hence Vulcan. Volcanoes, Vulcan, yeah, yeah. It's good branding right there. Uh, mm. Right there, yeah. Um, historically, the name Hephaestus goes way back. It's um, probably pre-Greek, there's no uh, Greek roots to it, but nobody really knows what it means. It could have been the guy's name. Hmm. It could have been just something scribbled, but it they have Minoan Crete writing, but nobody knows what it's referring to. Interesting. Uh, Vulcan, on the other hand, uh, has many plausible uh, different antecedents. Um, the suggestion that I liked was a Sanskrit word, ulka. Uh, and Sanskrit being the language of ancient Hindu texts and Ulka means fire. So it seems to fit. And also, um, you know, the hard V sound in Vulcan, uh, as we say, it really comes from our barbarian derived English. Mm. Uh, so the, the Romans would, would say a much softer, more Ulkan sound. Got it. So, so that's, you know, God of fire. So it, it is agreed that uh, Vulcan's mother was Juno. Um, however, again, we have stories similar uh, to Mars where Jupiter may or may not have been the father. But mm. in this case, I'm going to say that Jupiter was the father um, primarily because Vulcan was the older sister to, or the older brother to Minerva or, or Athena. Right. Um, whose birth was the motivation for Juno to conceive without Jupiter. Um, and we know this because, uh, as we discussed, Minerva sprung out of Jupiter's head. But yes. what, we haven't, what we hadn't talked about was Vulcan was the one who did the springing. Did he the springing. Took, he took an axe <laughs> to, to Zeus's head in order to free her, which uh, probably had some satisfaction for him as we'll see, to, uh, to be able to do that. Uh, but so it makes more sense that he would have been Jupiter's uh, son. And, you know, we use that trick on Mars. So, yes, we'll, you know, as a podcast. So we'll say that it was was Jupiter's son. Um, and Jupiter and Zeus are the same figure for, for those following. Yeah, yeah. As it, as it, yeah. I, I probably I go back and forth sometimes. So, yes, uh, Vulcan had a little bit of a rough childhood. Um, mm -hmm which, you know, seems to be a theme with not <laughs> with a lot of these guys, um, uh, especially in the uh, 
Juno and Jupiter a household. Mm -hmm. uh, Vulcan uh, was famously not considered very attractive, so it's a contrast to Apollo, right. um, at least for Olymp an Olympian. You know, the artistic renderings that we have him don't really depict, depict him as ugly per se, more kind of an average and real life kind of guy. But yeah. I think, you know, on Mount Olympus, you know, that puts you a little bit behind the bar. So a five in real life, maybe a two on Mount Olympus. So, um, and in addition, uh, Vulcan, uh, by all accounts, had some sort of limp, uh, mm. something did not uh some sort of problem walking so it's kind of interesting to have uh an olympian with a disability you know uh, the ancient world was not particularly known for being friendly to people with disabilities no but here in this case we have have a god who has uh, a, a limp um there may have been some historical connection with blacksmiths and mm. limping mm. um Bronze Age blacksmiths, uh, which would have been the early part of uh, where Greek myths were formed, uh, sometimes used arsenic in the metalworking process. Oh. And now, as we would expect, uh, that would cause arsenic poisoning yes. uh, among, among blacksmiths. But of course, uh, that was not, not well known then. Occupational hazard. Yes, occupational hazard. Along and, with and burning. Being a blacksmith was right. Fairly dangerous <laughs> job then. Yeah. Uh, ancient Greek OSHA was not very effective as no. an organization. <laughs> very early days. Yeah, not, yes. not the mature organization. Understaffed, right. fines, budget cuts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, so. So, it was, so, so that, that may have been where it came from, but nobody really knows, but that, that's uh, one of the conjectures. Um, but how Vulcan acquired his limp has two different stories. One story is that he was born with a limp and his mother, Juno, charmingly, uh, threw him down from Mount Olympus when she saw that uh, he had a malformed foot. Oh, my goodness. A adding injury to injury. That's, that's yes. bad form. Yes. The other story is that Zeus threw him down from Mount Olympus uh, <laughs> because Hephaestus took, or uh, because uh, Vulcan took Juno's side in a fight over um, Juno, Juno trying to drown Hercules while... Uh, Jupiter was napping. So in that version, it was the fall that actually caused the limp. So he did not have a limp beforehand. But given what we know about his parents, I feel like we don't really need to pick just one of these. No, I, there's, <laughs> there's, there's, a, there's probably a thread of truth to all of them. Yeah. Yes, yeah. They, they both seem plausible enough to say yes. yeah, these, these both could have happened. Um, maybe, maybe Jupiter just made it worse. <laughs> uh, so in any case... Um, the version that has Vulcan being tossed out uh, as a baby, he is raised by two nymphs, um, one, of, one of them being Thetis, uh, who will go on to be the mother of Achilles. And he's raised in a hidden cave uh, by the ocean. Um, and he just kind of stays there playing with fire and metallurgy, you know, sure. as you do. Right. Um, as a child and then this is where his you know but eventually he decides that he wants to get out of the grotto he wants to reclaim his his birthright go back up to heaven up to the heavens to Mount still Olympus. an olympian yeah still yeah. got a birthright he, yeah he wants to go back up so and this is where his craftiness first comes mm -hmm. out 
he sends up golden thrones for all the Olympic gods. Uh, you know, they're just beautifully made. Oh, um, so of course they accept them. And he's a you know, master craftsman already. And they're all gold, except for Hera's, ah. which is made of adamant. But maybe with like some gold plating on it. Uh, I'm not sure. So that she'll accept it. In any case, as soon as Juno sits down, uh, the one designed for her, a trap springs. Oh, my goodness. And it grabs her arms and she is trapped in the chair. Now, that is crafty. Yes. And none of the gods can free her, including uh, Jupiter. So Jupiter offers Venus's hand in marriage hmm. to whichever god can free Juno. So even he can't now, do it. Like this is even a serious he can't trap. Do it. Wow. Yes. It, it's adamant. It's the, it's the real deal. Mm-hmm. That's actually the bars of Tartarus. Okay. Are made of that same metal. So maximum security. Yes. Maximum security. Uh, so Venus agrees to this because she thinks that Mars is going to win and she's already in love with Mars. So she mm-hmm. thinks it's good. Oh, this is great. You know, sure. Go ahead and do it. He's, he's going to be the one that frees her. But uh, when Mars goes down, to force Vulcan back up to Olympus, it doesn't go so well. No, at least for Mars. Right. Um, he attacks kind of without any planning, and according to this one Greek writer, uh, Libanius, uh, Vulcan fights him off uh, with a shower of flaming metal. And I went down a rabbit hole in this, trying to see if I could get the actual quotes, but the only addition I could find in English was. Like one hundred and thirty dollars, so I said, you know, yeah, I'll, I'll just I'll just take the internet quote for that. Yeah, so. the Patreon account is not flush enough <laughs> yeah. to, to to handle that just yet. Not not yet. So no. Um, so uh, Mars can't break the the cuffs physically either. So then it is uh, Bacchus's turn. Oh well, and and he, as you may imagine, takes a slightly different track uh, to, to this. Uh, <laughs> He plies uh, Vulcan a little wine, a little sure. conversation mm-hmm. comes down, you know, and after a little while, they're best of buddies. Sure. And he invites Vulcan to come back up to Olympus. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he makes a deal. He provides a donkey for him to ride on all the nice. way up to Olympus. Uh, and so helpful they're, because they're, of the limp. Just yes. Good. And and there are often are, are vases of, uh, of Hephaestus in, in Greek, uh, on a donkey and, and the donkey is associated with this so, and another story that, that i'll come to later uh so vulcan agrees to free juno in exchange for being able to come back up to mount olympus hmm. and uh being able to marry venus i mean kind so of his plan a, all along it's i mean yes. yeah so so you know because he come because he came up voluntarily he's the one that is given the prize and that was hmm. kind of uh Bacchus's plan all along um there is a version of this where he actually uh marries uh minerva and or tries to marry minerva instead which maybe we'll talk about later but the general story is that uh this is how he gets uh, married to venus so uh the source for and i'm going to just switch over the greek names here because this is uh, coming out of the iliad uh for zeus um throwing Hephaestus from Olympus comes from the Iliad. Uh, at the end of the book one, the gods are having a bit of a family dinner, a mm-hmm. uh, big feast, and it's not going too well because there's strife between 
uh, Hera and Zeus uh, yeah. this time uh, because they picked different sides in the Trojan War. Sure. And, uh, you know, Hephaestus tries to play Peacemaker. You know, he says, you guys are squabbling. You're setting the gods in tumult just for the sake of mortals, which mm. doesn't seem worth it. Plus, no. you're ruining the feast. Yeah, you know, we're trying to have just, dinner here. <laughs> exactly. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's very relatable. Um, and in that uh, quote, then he goes on uh, to, t- to talk about Zeus throwing him out of Olympus uh, for that past dispute. And he says, he says of Zeus, he caught me by the foot and hurled me from heavenly threshold. The whole day long, I was carried headlong. And at sunset, I fell in Lemnos. Mm. But little life was in me. There, the sentient folk quickly tended me for my fall. So, uh, you know, that does bring back in, if you recall, in episode one, it was Lemnos that he was going to yes. when he set the trap. That's so right. So we can see why that was so uh, credible. Oh, yeah. It's a great sure. callback. He's to, yeah, he's, he's going to Lemnos. Of course, that's yeah. credible. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I kind of picture Zeus is just sitting there smirking <laughs> the whole time he's <laughs> he's listening to this, this story. But, um, you know, so he, he's rescued by the people from Lemnos. Uh, and then in the staying in the Iliad, um, we have an example of a god versus god battle. Hmm. Um, and this is between Hephaestus and the river god Scamandros, hmm. who is tied to the Scamander River, uh, which was outside of Troy. Um, so Scamandros is angered because of all of the Greek bodies uh, that are being thrown into the river after Achilles kills them. Sure. So the the river is being blocked. His waters are being fouled, and he's you know. Plus, he's rooting for the home team of the Trojans anyway. Yeah. And he decides he's going to start a flood to drown Achilles. And in this case, Hera, who is the champion of the Greeks in this war, uh, calls Hephaestus to attack the river god. And Hephaestus does. Uh, and I'll, and I'll quote from the Iliad here. He says, And Hephaestus made ready wondrous blazing fire. First on the plain was the fire kindled, and burned the dead, the many dead that lay thick therein, slain by Achilles, and all the plain was parched, and the bright water was stayed. So he uses the dead bodies as kindling nice. to start his fire. He gets it hot enough that it burns off the floodwaters. Wow. And then he turns his attention to the actual river. And then against the river, he turned the gleaming flame, burned were the elms and the willows and the tamarisks, tormented were the eels and the fishes and the eddies. The fair streams, they plunge this way and that, you know. Uh, so he basically sets the entire river on fire. The water is boiling. And Scamandro says, enough, enough. I give up. Yeah. Um, uncle. Yeah. He call, tries uncle. Uh, he sues for peace, promising, you know, he's going to stay out of the war from then on. Just you know, call off the fire. And uh, like, fine. I'll take all the dead bodies I have to. <laughs> yeah. I give up. Yeah, I'll just wash them all down. Um, and uh, Hera calls Hephaestus off. And so, you know, one in the wind column for nice. Hephaestus. Good job. Um, and now we've, we've already recounted the trap uh, that Hephaestus set for Aphrodite and Ares in their fair uh, in Mars's episode, episode one. Um, 
he uses those spider web fin net to capture them, humiliate them. Uh, but one thing we didn't really mention in that in that myth, he also demands the return of his bride gifts uh, from Zeus uh, for the marriage. And so according to one source that I found, uh, that matches the ancient Greek divorce laws. Oh, So according to this source, that should be interpreted that they were divorced. That was that. that was the deal breaker. Yeah, that, that was, was the deal breaker. That that was it. That that demanding those those presents that that was the symbolic of right. We're getting a divorce. Um, and in in other sources, it appears that the Vulcan uh, or Festus uh, did go on to marry uh, one of the Graces or Charities uh, named Algea and had four children with her. So, okay. So we had a good second credit. act. Yeah. yeah so the first had, didn't go well. I love it. Yeah. So he, he, he moved on from there when Vulcan wasn't making traps, he was making all sorts of crafts. Uh, basically when anyone had any bling or anything nice on Olympus, uh, in any of the mists, it was credited, uh, to Vulcan and his workshop, uh, Minerva's weapons. You already mentioned Apollo's, right. uh, bow and arrow, uh, Zeus's thunderbolts, uh, the armor of Hercules, the armor of Achilles, all the palaces of Olympus and uh, chariots of the gods, including uh, Helios. Wow. Uh, so, so the master craftsman across the board. Yeah, master craftsman. He had, he had a very strong brand uh, yes. through all the mythological writing. Um, and I'm going to mention a couple of the more impressive ones that he made for himself uh, when we get to the curriculum vitae. Um, most impressively, uh, Festus was credited with forming the first woman, Pandora, uh, who was kind of the Greek Eve, formed her out of clay. Um, then she was given all sorts of other gifts from other gods, but he was the one who sort of formed the first woman. Wow. Um, you know, in terms of worship, um, you know, Festus Vulcan, it's more of a, a regional interest. Um, he was somewhat popular in Athens, but always, of course, considered secondary to Athena. Hmm. Uh, he was popular in Lemnos, which, you know, I'm not sure, sure. how far that gets you, but uh, <laughs> hometown favorite, there. though. Yeah. yeah, he was a hometown favorite. Um, and that was where he, he was uh, reputed to have fallen and where he fell, that spot where he exactly fell was said to have cured madness. Oh, so, you know, that was nice. Um, in Sicily, around Mount Etna, uh, you had some shrines. In the city of Rome itself, uh, there was a Vulcanalia festival, uh, <laughs> August 23rd. Um, in part, it was held then because that was the highest uh, fire danger season. Um, so they wanted to offer a little sacrifice, maybe have a little controlled burn uh, to prevent a catastrophic fire. Sure. Um, so they have a giant bonfire and then they would throw small animals and fish into the fire. Okay. So, you know, uh, as well as some grains. Um, then during Nero's reign, there was the great fire uh, where famously Nero uh, was said to have fiddled. Right. And after that, uh, the ante was upped a little bit and they would uh, have a Red Bull sacrifice, hmm. which... You can interpret it either as, a, as an energy drink or a bowl that happens to be red. Right. Um, but high energy either way, I would assume. Yes. <laughs> the adrenaline energy. was pumping in any case. Right. 
and, and a good time was had while and that's uh what i have on vulcan vulcan hephaestus fascinating he's a, again a, a zelig type figure a, a bit of a yes a bit of a mythological forest gump appearing in all sorts of very important moments <laughs> right yes right now it gets a little bit of a shout out when anybody has anything nice so that's good but that's uh, right absolutely all right source. well let's uh let's take our breather here and gear up for the grand finale the categories Excellent. the judgment back right after this okay All right, moving to the end. For some reason, in episode two, I kept referring to these as the six categories, when in fact, uh, the simple math now re- reveals that there are five. So, right. I thought correction you were, made. Right. I thought, I thought maybe you were counting the golden apple as its own category. I think at some level I was, uh, but I have no excuse. That, that, that kind of poor math is, is unacceptable, so I take all the blame. Right. Well, let's hit those categories. Uh, Andrew, you want to start us off with uh, Immortal Combat? Yes, this is Immortal Combat. Uh, this is probably the most interesting Mortal Kombat round that we've had to date. The uh, one where, you know, perhaps some school kids or barflies may have actually discussed this sometime yes. in the last 2000 years. <laughs> um, so the good for Vulcan, uh, he can project fire. Yes. Um, certainly enough to beat a river God, mm-hmm. uh, which he does in both the Dionassica and the Iliad. So he's got two river gods under his belt. And, um, and uh, conquering water with fire is no mean feat. I mean, only, yeah, it, only Cleveland. Fire. Yeah, I can't really pull that <laughs> off. That's I, besides, besides Vulcan. Yes. Yes. Um, he can project metal, molten metal, um, at least if he's attacked in his forge, which would not recommend. No. Um, and he had some ability to lead a cav- cavalry charge mm-hmm. um, in the war against the giants, um, which was a war sometime after the war with the Titans. Uh, Vulcan and Bacchus led a decisive uh, cavalry charge. Um, and uh, this is from Hygienus Astronomica. It says, after Jupiter had declared war on the giants, he summoned all the gods to combat them. And Bacchus, Vulcan, and the Satyrs came riding on donkeys. Since they were not far from the enemy, the donkeys were terrified. And individually, they let out a brang, such as the giants had never heard. At the noise, the enemy took hastily to flight and thus were defeated. Mm. So, so yeah. a bunch of donkeys <laughs> a bunch of scared donkeys, the yeah. giants away. That's fascinating. Yes, that, that, as mythological combat goes <laughs> that is one of them not bad yeah yeah so um on the bad side uh he he can't fly obviously so no. that's uh they barely walk yeah he has answer over that too um and he certainly is no match for jupiter uh, which we found out um and then in another myth of prometheus um where prometheus is tied to the rock uh it is actually Hephaestus who does it, but he does it sort of under protest. However, he's intimidated into doing it by uh, two of uh, Zeus's hench gods, Kratos and Bia. So <laughs> they just sort of bully him into doing it. So hench gods. I, that's a yes. new one by me. I like that. Yeah. Um, so that that's that's what I have on 
on Vulcan. A little good, a little bad. Yeah, good, good, kind of a mixed bag there. I, you know, I think on the Apollo side, you certainly have the war record. We talked about the Trojan War, also the Theban War. He was a hero in the Indian War, helping Dionysus conquer India, probably yeah. using some of those, perhaps some of those same donkeys. <laughs> uh, so clearly, in the in the in the battlefield, was pretty adept. You know, on his own, of course, Apollo also defeated lizard monsters, giants, using fairly small weaponry, just a bow and arrow and a javelin from time to time when his mom was messed with. Uh, right. So he was able to take on a pretty formidable uh, sized foe there. I think in terms of skill set, a pretty like a double threat, right? Because he's got he's got the, the, the skill with the weaponry, the bow and arrow, the javelin, but the athletic ability as well. He can he can run faster than anybody. He can wrestle right. better than anybody else can. Uh, I'm confident that if in his time they had had the luge or synchronized <laughs> swimming, he would have meddled in all those two. Yeah. So I think just at a pure athletic level, he's got the skills, but he also has the body to make it work. And one thing we learned too, he's not, he's not afraid to fight dirty when he has to. So if you, you know, cross his family, he's not above infecting an arrow with the plague, for instance, or, right. or you, you know, so essentially a sort of an early practitioner of chemical weapons, uh, <laughs> decades, centuries, millennia before they were fashionable. So I think a pretty strong case uh, in terms of combat here. I, I think right. the the ability with the small weaponry, uh, the proven metal on the battlefield, and I think as impressive as 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 Vulcan's battle skills are, I think he's still hampered by the fact that he's, he's he doesn't get around very well. I think he relies yeah. on some pretty heavy artillery that can only have in certain spaces. Clearly, he relies on uh, the, the sonic appeal of donkeys. <laughs> to, to win many of his battles. Yeah. So I, I think, I think my own. vote goes to Apollo on this one. I think. Yeah. You know, I think uh, in some ways in, and this might come up a couple of times when we're, when we're talking about this, but in some ways as the God of fire, Vulcan doesn't quite pull out the personality of what you would expect or want from, you know, he's not as heavy metal mm. uh, as you might want from uh, a God of fire. Uh, in his personality and he's more of a reluctant warrior mm. uh you know and i think for that he'd be much happier you know back in the forge uh he'll fight if you attack him or if his mother tells him to sure uh, but his heart's not really in in the fighting uh so much he's so a I think forger I not a fighter yeah <laughs> he's a forger not a fighter that, yes. that's that's very much he, he's he's happy as a craftsman yes uh so i'm gonna agree with you i think i think apollo with the far-reaching arrows, you know he can stay at a distance. I don't, I don't know how far uh, Vulcan's really projecting that fire. Yeah, and, and yeah. I, I think uh, I think Apollo's going to take that one. Now that said, Apollo also has the ability to heal. So I wasn't able to find any stories about Apollo healing himself. Uh, uh, yeah, but yeah. I do think as a wild card, if Vulcan did get rubbed the wrong way and sent some fire in his direction, he might be able to do a little bit of. A little bit of an Olympian special to just uh, oh, heal yeah. himself up, like any split, be just fine. So I think that even solidifies my vote for Apollo further. No, yeah, I think I think that's a good point. Great. All right, so uh, going on to the second round. Yes, I would score one nothing for Apollo. Yes, this is curriculum deity, which is the it factor of you know who would you rather be, who would you rather follow. Um, you want to start off for this one? Uh, yeah. So I think in terms of who I'd rather be, uh, this is this is kind of a no-brainer. I mean, I, no, all, all due respect to, to Vulcan, but I mean, in terms of just having it all, Apollo's got it. I mean, he is, he, you know, in our modern day interpretation, he is like the equivalent of like Muhammad Ali and Tom Brady 
and Jimi <laughs> Hendrix and George Washington and like Dr. Spock and Mr. Spock, <laughs> Albert Einstein, Brad Pitt. And on top of all that, he can also see the future. So he's really any kind of guy you want to be. He's great to his mom, gets along yeah. well with his sister. You know, he, he really, he's, he's hitting on all, all, all the cylinders. So and, and it's, his kids are the he's best. Got a nice players. island pad. He's got, he had a couple of pads. I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that in a, in a second, but he definitely had uh, similar to your discussion of, of Mars in episode one. He had kind of his summer home and his winter home. There were temples in both. Uh, fun little side note, when he, when he went away in the winter, when he left uh, Delphi, where, where, the, where the, um, the Oracle was, he would go to his warmer climates. He would let Dionysus take care of the place when he was gone, which <laughs> hey, well, seems like a terrible, yeah, house, it seems like a terrible idea because right. the, the town drunk is not the guy you want keeping your eye on the place. So as it turned out, there, were no, uh, there was no Oracle activity that happened during those months. <laughs> so he just yeah. it was really shut the place down, keep one eye open, you know, gather the mail, maybe one right. of the plants, that's it. So I think in terms of, yeah, and, and many, many houses, I mean, the, the amount of temples we'll talk about uh, in a quick second, but no, I think, you know, clearly revered in his country. And that kind of gets us to who would you rather follow? And I think as, as, a, as a worshiper, you know, beyond these two main shrines, you know, one, of course, in, in Delos is his, his place of birth. And then in Delphi, which we mentioned, the summer home is, I guess, the third, but dozens of temples all over the place, all throughout Greece. Uh, they were everywhere in the day. It's, they were the they were like franchises. They were like the equivalent of a, of a Starbucks in Greece. If Starbucks had, you know, Doric and Ionic columns everywhere and perfect mathematical ratios <laughs> were visited by people from throughout the world. So as a worshiper, that's appealing to me. It's very convenient. You can you can get your worship on anywhere you want. Um, and I think as as an added bonus, because he is the Greek national god, to worship Apollo is sort of like its own form of patriotism. All right. So you're both sort of, yeah. you're, you're, you're kind of uh, at the same time, you're loving your country and you're saying your prayers all at once. And it's the equivalent of it. We had like a St. America. All right. Yeah. That would be it. So, I mean, I think that's, it's a strong case. I think both in terms of the guy you want to be uh, and the guy you want to worship. So that's, that's, that's the case for Apollo. All right. So um, let me, yeah, I'll go through uh, Vulcan a little bit here. And uh, in the Iliad, we get a little description and I'm going to use a face this because that's what the, the text is of his physical description. Um, it says, Hephaestus took the huge blower off from the block of the anvil limping, and yet his shrunken legs moved lightly beneath him. Then with a sponge, he wiped clean his forehead and both hands and his massive neck and hairy chest. And on the tunic, he took a heavy stick in his hand and went to the doorway limping. So, you know, massive chest, massive yeah. neck, Hairy chest, yeah. neck, you know, so it's a little bit of a different to contrast. I would say so compared to the hairless, yes, uh, beardless. Uh, you know, he's he's a you know, a little, little more, more of your kind of a blue collar guy, right? Uh, is is I think how, how we would you know, a muscular working man. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, he was reputed to have three houses. Uh, you had the one on Olympus, um, and one in Sicily, uh, near that, uh, Volcano, we were talking about that was where he had a forge and mm-hmm. uh, one in one of the Greek islands that also had uh, a volcano. And those were his sort of his, his working, his forges. And, mm-hmm. um, and they, you know, talking about his house on Olympus, uh, you know, it says it was made of imperishable bronze adorned with stars and the finest among the immortals. So he had the nicest house, you know, he got the workman to come work off book. Oh, that's right. <laughs> you know, yeah. 
Make some patronage nice jobs. The metal yeah. work was, was, I'm sure it's stupendous. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it was good. Um, in terms of his entourage, um, in the Iliad, we were also told that, uh, you know, he had a second wife, uh, Algea, and uh, he also had golden female shaped automaton attendants in oh. his the workforce. So he had made uh, golden robot ladies uh, for his workshop. <laughs> Um, that was it, a phrase I did not expect to come in, <laughs> in this or any of these episodes. Yeah, no, he had the golden robot ladies and uh, he had automated uh, wheeled tripod stools for himself to get wow. himself around. Nice. So, and, and these were all uh, come out of uh, directly out of you know, like the Iliad that, uh, that he had these things. Um, in his forge in Sicily, um, you know, this comes out of the Aeneid. It says, uh, here's Vulcan's place called the island of Volcania, which, you know, uh, hither now the fire god repaired from heaven above and the cyclopses were hard at work in his underground iron foundry, Brontes and Steropes and Pyramacon stripped in the buff. Oh. So he's got some, <laughs> some you know, he's got some eye candy. Buff, yeah. Uh, Cyclops working okay, for mean, him. Sure. You know? um, you know, and then it goes on to say all the different stuff that they were working on. Athena's Aegis and uh, had a surface of gold, like scaly snakeskin, and um, a couple other things. But he says, "But put all that aside because we have to make something for for Aeneas." And he orders that, and they all, you know, all as one sort of respond and get on the new, uh, you know. So he, he ran, ran a tight ship. Yeah, he had a nice workshop going. Um, you know, in terms of of being a follower. Yeah, you know, we don't get a lot uh, other than you know uh, Lemnos, mm-hmm. and uh, also um, that Vulcan- Vulcanalia uh, in in Rome with uh, you know possibly some energy drinks. So yeah, and so you've you know, got I, some you've got some people around him. Many are are either robots or employees or yeah, employees uh, with yeah uh, one eye. Right. Um, Some stripped down cyclopes uh, wandering about. Yeah. Okay. I mean, those are, but he strikes me as kind of a loner at heart. I mean, these are, these are more sort of professional. Yes. Yeah. And I, I I think that's, I think that's, that's accurate. Um, And so, yeah, I, I, I think that to me, Apollo kind of takes both the the boxes on both these, Uh, you know, has much more of a center of worship and he's, He's got a little more of the it factor. And I think that's what this is about. Agreed. And, and something of an international star too. I mean, we talk about sort of Greece as its own entity and, and many of these gods at the time were, were really well revered in the country. Uh, but right. this temple attracted folks from all over Europe, Asia. So really a, an international star for his day. Yeah. So I think, I think it's a good vote for both of us for Apollo for, uh, for category two. All right. All right. So that brings us to good God. Good um, and this is a tough one on Vulcan. Um, you know, he doesn't give me a strong moral vibe uh, either way. You know, he he kind of doesn't do a lot of good things or, you know, a lot of, a lot of bad things, which uh, for some of the gods, you know, maybe would be enough. Um, one of the more negative things that he does, which we may hit in a future episode, so I'll just uh, mention it briefly, is... Uh, Harmonia, who is the daughter of uh, Mars and Venus, um, 
possibly while he was married to Venus. Mm. Uh, he curses a necklace that is given to her on the wedding. Uh, and that carries through uh, for, for a long time, which, you know, wasn't really her fault. She wasn't, you know, this is, but he held a grudge there. Um, <laughs> he, you know, he has a history of trying to play peacemaker between his parents, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, which is understandable, but uh, doesn't really get very far uh, in those. Uh, gets he, him thrown off the island, essentially. Yeah, he gets, to, yes, just trying to have a nice dinner here. Right, yeah. Um, and then uh, he he was against the punishment of, of Prometheus, as I said, but ultimately he carried it out. Still did um, it. And somebody, yeah, and somebody shook us their fist at him. Uh, and then, you know, you have the that entrapment of uh, Venus and Mars, uh, which... You know, again, from an understandable place, but yes, you know, maybe maybe went a little bit far. So, uh, how how are you looking at Apollo? Well, you know, Apollo, I think he he scores a lot of points in terms of just the the, the sort of benefactor notion. How he he devoted a lot of his time to others. So you're talking about protecting the children, his work as a healer, his work as an educator. Uh, so there's a lot of a lot of good vibes there. Um, I think you know we mentioned in terms of his his role at the Oracle itself about being this link between the divine and speaking the truth, giving people not just you know a glimpse of their future, but letting them know what the truth was, right. and they could interpret that as they would, and that ends up being the seed of a lot of these stories. But ultimately, he was the one giving them the light and the truth, and you know, make of that what you will. Um, at the same time, you know he does go on the occasional killing spree. I think <laughs> you know you can attribute that a bit to to the need for vengeance for, for some obvious stories about his mom. Um, I think he's motivated by the honor of his family. And so, you know, one of the things that gets him past being a pure bad guy is he really does pay the price for it. I mean, he does work for nine years as a slave. He doesn't, he doesn't just say, Hey, my dad's in All high right. places. I don't deserve a punishment. He, he does the time for nine years and he finally is purified and he passes that forward and ends up being the purifier for other gods and other men. So I think there's, there's almost a selflessness to him that I think is is rare among figures like this. Not not across the board, right. but I think the amount of talent that he had and how much of that he put forth toward making others better is pretty impressive. Now that said, Vulcan does have a soft spot for me because I feel like he is the the the, the notion of being a reluctant warrior is kind of impressive. He's not out there right. mixing it up. He's playing defense most of the time. I like the idea that he is you know, trying to get back in his family's good graces. He clearly gets a raw deal from the start because of a disability that was either no fault of his own or just an occupational hazard. Right. So I feel like he's acting even in his, in his craftiest and his, you know, his sneakiest, he's still doing it from the right place. So I think there's a case to be made for both here. This is, this is a tight one. All right. Yeah. So, yeah, that, I do think, uh, you know, the, of the stories that you uh, relayed, the, the flaying of the satyr. That's not great. Yeah, no. <laughs> it sticks. It sticks with you. I mean, he, I mean, yeah. He he did. You know, he he talked a little bit. He was, uh, you know, but that seems a little far. Um, there's a, there's an earlier version of that story where instead of hanging the flayed skin of the satyr up as a warning <laughs> to everybody else, he he uses it as a wine skin. So say like, if, if we're, I'm still going to flay this guy, but at least we're going to have something that we can use for storage. There's a practical purpose to that, but right. 
Uh, is, yeah, I don't know if that's that's. I think I actually I think the, I like the warning part better because at least he's it has a, has more of a community purpose that's of right. uh, of this is you know this is how justice is gonna gonna be meted out of bragging about <laughs> flute playing. So all the flute players be warned out there. Check that that this is what door. can happen. You know, and uh, when we, when we talk about the um, what you know kind of what they're bringing to the table, you know, it's kind of interesting. I think how much more of a Smith God uh, Vulcan is viewed at than just fire. Like, you know, hmm. fire, fire would be enough, uh, you know, God of fire. Yeah. Um, Powerful. Yeah. Um, but, you know, and I, and I think at that time, you know, that was high tech, right. the, the metalworking, you know, that was high tech. And that was, and, and especially if you were, uh, these stories that were being told around, uh, um, for warrior halls or whatever you know they all would have had their swords and, and that was was the thing that kind of separated them or having that technology was important to uh yeah. defending the city state and all that kind of stuff you know so you can almost think of him as a high tech like a you know a bill gates sure sort of figure like of his day of yeah. his day yeah or, or uh you know so uh yeah I think the flaying, I just can't, I can't yeah. get past. Yep. <laughs> I can't get past the flaying and the children killing. And the, um, those are, those are definitely hard strikes. I, I think I'm with you. I think I give Vulcan the edge on this one. And I think part of my logic is that he's doing a lot with what he's been given. You know, I think when you compare the limited resources relatively to other obviously Olympian gods, but when you think <laughs> about the disadvantages that, that Vulcan has and what he's able to accomplish in his work, in his contributions to his family, his community, his, his economy uh, <laughs> yes. compared to Apollo, who while achieved a great amount of things was clearly a prodigy. Yeah, from the, the gold boy. He was the golden boy. He was and, by, yeah. in, in every yeah. literal sense. And I think right. he, he got a lot of mileage for what he had, but ultimately character wise, I give Vulcan extra points for making the most out of having a little bit less. All right. Yeah. No. All right. So we're in agreement. Yes. And that makes us two to one um, and takes us to the iconography round. Um, do you want to start off or? Yeah. So the better legacy now, Apollo's got, uh, you know, obviously the name has, has carried a lot of weight over the years. We, we probably know the best, the, the missions of, of right. Apollo from uh, the 1960s from NASA. Uh, they were named by the manager of NASA at the time, Abe Silverstein, who uh, later said, and I'm quoting, I was naming the spacecraft like I'd name my baby. And he chose <laughs> it at home one evening. He said he chose it because he felt, quote, Apollo riding his chariot across the sun was appropriate to the grand scale of the proposed program. So just as Apollo himself was a bit of a mixed bag, obviously over the course of the Apollo program, there were ups and downs and you've got yeah, Apollo one sure. as, a, as a downside, never lifted off. Of course, four, four astronauts died in the launch pad, but then you've got the glorious Apollo 11 first landing on the moon. So a right. lot, you know, different extremes of the spectrum. And then you've got somewhere between like Apollo 13, which of course is, didn't quite make it to where it was going, but it did arrive home safely. So it always brings to mind nothing but problems in Houston. And in my experience, <laughs> both of those are probably to be avoided. So yeah. we'll call that one in the middle. Uh, right. Of course, Apollo Creed in, in fiction, um, very popular character in the Rocky yeah. Balboa series, but like Apollo, again, mixed bag, like when he went up against Rocky in Rocky One and, and to some degree in Rocky Two, fared very well. Right. When he fared against, uh, when he went, went against Ivan Drago in Rocky Four, did not work out well. No. 
Not at he all. might he might have been a, a candidate for the hubris. I, that that could very well be. Yeah. yeah, especially when you consider all the uh, sort of uh, sort of xenophobic puffery that he put on before that fight, living in America, yeah. that Uncle Sam had. Yeah, that's a great yeah. point. Hubris indeed. So ups and downs there. Uh, of course, the Apollo Theater in in Harlem. Oh very, yeah, yeah. Very famous for launching the careers of countless great artists: Billy Holiday, Ella Fitzgerald, Aretha Franklin, Stevie Wonder, Supremes, Jackson Five. As a name, however, does not get a lot as the name of, of, a, of a person in this, this day and age. Now, there are some rare examples. Uh, you've got Apollo Anton Ono, of course, the American speed skater. And he deserves oh, yeah, that yeah. name because he was, of course, a multiple Olympic champion. So he kind of checks that box as an Apollo. Uh, the youngest son of Gwen Stefani and Gavin Rossdale was named <laughs> Apollo, who I'm there sure will end up being a, a perfectly competent musician. So he fits that, that part of the bill. Um, but ultimately, I think... When you're naming your kid Apollo, you're really asking a lot. You're putting a lot of pressure on him. So it's probably for the best that uh, we don't have too many of those. Uh, But I think probably my favorite in in the sort of legacy department is in psychology, we've got this Jungian archetype. Carl Jung had an Apollo archetype. And he would uh, attribute to this archetype people who favor thinking over feeling, favor distance over closeness, who see Jung saw a disposition to over-intellectualize and maintain emotional distance. (laughs) So I can understand why I am drawn to that type. There's a certain kinship that I feel. So for all of my my own uh, liabilities as an athlete and a musician, all those other things, emotional distance, something I've really perfected over the years. So, uh, so all in all, you know, from the Apollo missions to areas of pop culture, I think a pretty pretty strong connection. Yeah. You know, he'll, Apollo himself as a god will appear in you know Clash of the Titans and all those various kinds of movies. But I think the right. the lasting legacy through through his namesakes. I think are, are befitting of, of where he's landed. All right. Yeah. That's some interesting stuff uh, for, for Vulcan, you know, and, and it's one of those things where, uh, you know, it almost always comes through the the Latin uh, tradition. There's not a lot of things named Hephaestus. There's not right. a lot of heavy. Doesn't, doesn't roll off the tongue. No. Yeah. So um, coming out, but uh, volcano obviously right. uh, is uh, one about vulcanized rubber and vulcanization mm-hmm. is process of adding heat to something in order to uh, improve it. And so that's uh, good. Vulcanization. There, there is uh, a Vulcan Kawasaki motorcycle. Mm, okay. So it, it is a type of motorcycle. Um, there's a cryptocurrency and NFT marketplace called Vulcan Forged. Well, I don't that, know, but adding forged to your cryptocurrency maybe is not helping out. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like a cross promotional opportunity for this podcast to me. But yeah, that's, that's, maybe that's you know, down for later. We can edit that out. Um, <laughs> the the Vulcan Quick Draw, which is a magnetized, as you know, is a magnetized gun holster. That's, Thank you. That's, that's, I'm wearing mine right desk. now. Yes. <laughs> you know, it would be under your desk. Oh, it's one of those. Under, yeah, under the car dashboard. You know, it's under one of those uh, oh. um, Star Wars Rito sort of. Uh, yes. Uh, um, holsters. So, and. Literary fiction, Vulcan's Forge, not to be confused with Vulcan Forged, uh, is a story about a new limitless power source erupting from an underwater volcano. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is Vulcan, uh, colon, an alien sci-fi romance. Uh, so uh, from Demelza Carlton. And, uh, and I'll, I'll quote from that one. Uh, Every New Year's Eve... Vulcan takes the stage at the most exclusive club in the colony. And every year, New Year's Eve, shy librarian Hestia takes the same table to watch the show. But this year, 
Hestia is making a New Year's resolution that could change everything <laughs> if she dares. What is this? <laughs> is that it, like it is, it's mythological erotic fiction? I would say, yeah, that, that maybe, you know, it's, it's romance. Okay, I apologize. <laughs> yes, it, yes, it is a romance. And, and just uh, so, so uh, to clear, uh, I did find one in this series uh, hmm. that it was about Cupid, which, oh, which, yes. we missed, which we missed at the last episode. Um, but that in that one, there are apparently many Cupids hmm. um, and uh, can a lonely Cupid find love or will he find victim to the Cupid's curse too? I don't, so I don't, know, I don't know what that is, but uh, that is um, for anyone who is interested. Uh, that is Demelza Carlton. Excellent uh, writer, writer of that series. Add that to my uh, to my reading list. Yeah, there you go. Uh, and of course, Vulcan has a planet uh, in Star Trek as a yes, fictional that's planet. Right, that's right. Uh, with hey, if I can throw out Apollo Creed, I think you can, yeah, you can yeah. evoke well, uh, Mr. Spock. Yes, there you go. Um, and uh, there is a Vulcan park in Birmingham, Alabama, mm. uh, and it features the world's largest cast iron statue of. Vulcan. Oh yeah. So yeah, yeah. right in their park. So uh Birmingham uh has a history as a as a steel making town. Uh and so they have a, a Vulcan park and there is a Vulcan museum there. We'll have uh, to add that on the uh list of our God versus God tour. Yes, the, there you go. It's an outdoor program. Uh and uh there is a lesser known X-Men villain named Vulcan. Mm. Uh, so uh, has some sort of firepowers one assumes i'm sure he's wound to show up in one of these movies as the multiverse continues to <laughs> yes <laughs> only a matter of time <laughs> right there you go uh so yeah so that's and vulcan neither vulcan nor festus uh you know clicked on the names uh right. you know they're uh just a couple handful of children so named in, in the us every year so <laughs> those poor uh, bastards yeah yeah so there you go <laughs> Well, I, I think my my vote has to go to Apollo on this one. I think with all due respect to Vulcanization and, you know, erotically charged stories of librarians on New Year's Eve, uh, I think between space exploration, uh, music, and fictionalized boxing, I think that uh, it's a pretty, pretty strong story that lasts millennia. Yeah, no, I I, I think I, I, I agree with you. I think, uh, you know, not enough of the Star Trek fan for that to right. dissuade me. I think maybe if I was there when I when I did a lot of searching on Vulcan, there was a lot, a lot of Star Trek things that came up. Uh, yeah, um, readings. Me, yeah, then there were a lot of spacecraft. Yes. <laughs> so strong legacies in their way, both of them. Yes. Right. Uh, but I'm, I'm going to agree with you, uh, and Apollo. So that brings us to uh, three to one. Um, so Vulcan cannot catch up on points, but you know, see how close he can make it. Maybe we yes. maybe give us reason to overturn here in the matinee. Well, let's see. Round. Let's see. Um, so I guess I'll, I'll go first on this one. Please. I think it's, uh, well, this was a bit of a tough one, and I, and I think I, I emailed you earlier that I spent an inordinate amount of time <laughs> thinking about the matinee idol section. Um, and there are a couple of ways you could do it. I think. And I couldn't really pick on either. So I'll go over briefly just each one of them. Um, you know, there's certainly, there's plenty of trauma. There's mm. plenty of drama in, mm. in, in his early sure. life. Uh, you know, very strained relationship with both his parents. 
gets tossed out of heaven a couple of times. He grows up in a grotto, mm-hmm. uh, which, you know, is always uh, cinematically interesting. Um, he's got an unfortunate marriage with a love triangle, all that. Um, That's good. You know, so one way would be just to tell a straight origin story, you know, along kind of the lines of what I outlined in Mars, but, you know, as an origin story, you know, origin story of a Smith God who then goes on to serve those same mm-hmm. parents. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I wasn't clear how, you know, how you connect that to the rest of the story. Cause then you go and he goes through all this stuff and he's uh, serving the same parents, but um, you know, not a huge payoff. So then it kind of came to me that this has something of a Rudolph, the red nosed reindeer uh, story. So Is that right. Yeah. Rudolph is, you know, a misfit. He's, sure. he's an outcast, and because of the way he looks, differently abled. Yes, different. Yes, he is differently abled. He's rejected, mm-hmm. um, and uh, everyone's terrible to him because he's different. Very but true. then he proves himself. He proves his worth uh, by in a different way than everybody else. And then they come to accept him because he has uh, proven his worth. So That's an excellent know, analogy. A, Saves the day. Yep. A little bit of a redemption story in that in yep. that way. Um, but. I thought, you know, if you treat it a little bit more allegorically and, you know, maybe stretch the end a little bit, I think you could elevate it. So in this case, um, I'm thinking everyone's human. Uh, Jupiter and Juno are, are ultra rich people, kind of a period piece, mm. uh, you know, maybe Napoleonic era. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's sort of a succession meets Vanity Fair yeah. sort of vibe. Um, Vulcan has his limp rejected by his mother because of it uh, gets shipped off in this case, you know, to like an artsy cousin in a ramshackle place <laughs> by the sea, you know, when he experiences art and a little bit of the Bohemian lifestyle, gets up sculpture, mm. crafts, mechanical engineering, you know, and he's, you know, a natural at it. He, he's, um, and then he gets older, reclaims his birthright. And, you know, we have the kind of the, the sculpture thing. And, and I would leave in the, the, trapping his mother in the mm. seat but then as you play it like it's sort of a joke everybody but realizes it... <laughs> he's not, it's not really a joke no it's it? not no so uh, that's pretty good i would watch that movie yeah. yeah and his father is impressed with him and realizes oh he's going to be useful mm-hmm. you know we were at this napoleonic era trains are maybe starting to be a thing okay this guy is somebody i want to have around um he comes back man's be the heart of the family uh, interrupts his brother's marriage to his beautiful cousin mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, yep. and uh, gets married to her. But of course that ends up blowing back up on him. Uh, you know, Venus, his brother, you know, have an affair that blows up and he ends up uh, walking out on the family, goes to a place on the seaside with a huge workshop, you know, and again, get a glimpse of him with his uh, new wife, a new family and he's rejected all of that. But you know, I, it's a it's a dare I say a Hollywood ending even yeah so uh, after after a hard scrabble upbringing that's a that's a tremendous arc that's very well done and 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 in this case you know I would uh, have him played by Matthew McFadden uh, and naturally naturally he, he'll and, have the accent down just right he'll have right. all the succession in his genes already yeah and uh, Nicholas Braun as uh, who, cousin Greg cousin as, Greg uh, as Mars so there you go. <laughs> It practically writes itself. And it practically very, writes itself. Yeah. Very nice. But, but you know, you notice to do that, I had to kind of tilt the story away, which is a bit of creativity think, there. Yeah. Yeah. Which which I think is 
does sort of downgrade it a little bit from what the story is. You know, it's not like you could have, um, say, Citizen Kane and and say, oh, Thanatos was there in the room when he died. <laughs> <laughs> That's the story, right? So it's Citizen Kane. I win. It's the best one. <laughs> The best story. Hey, you know what? This is this is the art of myth, though, right? It begins with a core, right. and it's what you do with it afterward and over time. That expand on. Yeah. That's very good. Right. Interesting. That's very compelling. Well, you know, for this category for Apollo, you know, at, at a sort of cinematic level, of course, genre-wise, it's kind of got it all. It's got a story of revenge. It's got monsters, war scenes. It's got seeing the future, so a little bit of a paranormal aspect to it. You know, love affairs with women and men, so you've got multiple audiences <laughs> to. To, to, to bow to there. Plucky children are involved. He's got musical numbers, musical contests. So as a catch-all, it really has a little bit of everything. So really more of a limited series, I think, than a, than a feature yeah. film to squeeze all that in. Um, at the same time, because Apollo is so richly endowed with talent, uh, you know, I think there's there's a balancing act. There, there's He's almost a hard guy to root for because he is so good at so much, which I think is even why... Right one of his uh, competitors in the musical contest couldn't help but just mock him for being so great at so many things. <laughs> now I kind right. of understand where that came from. Right. Um, so it's hard to con- get picture him as, as, a, as a compelling protagonist. That said, it is also at its core the story of a young son's love for his mother, who's very, very right. much mistreated uh, by other devious family members and, and clearly not above uh, taking drastic measures to exact revenge after that. So I think... Uh, there's some, there's a story there. It's much more of the kind of a blockbuster, more special effects driven big story than the right. kind of uh, more emotional story. Yeah, it's kind of sprawl, sprawling. It's sprawling. sprawling. Yeah, it's, it's it's an epic unfolding over many hours. Uh, casting wise, though, and I kept going in circles about this, but ultimately I kept coming back to Academy Award winner Jared Leto. Okay, of course from Dallas Buyers Club. First of all, because his last name is is the name of Apollo's very mother, who's the core. Yeah. To this story, he's also very much fitting of the Apollo archetype. He's, he's very handsome, very lithe, kind of hairless. He has a sort of masculine and feminine qualities. Uh, he's somewhat, yeah, he's ageless. I mean, the guy just turned 50 and looks like he could be 20. He's a musician as well, yeah. a touring, practicing musician. His band is 30 Seconds to Mars, which on its own could be a future Apollo mission. Oh, yeah. In the other sense of the term. And he's kind of a strange dude, kind of has to go method, though, for a character like this. But to, to, to inhabit all these dimensions, I think uh, he could do the job well. So a fascinating idea, a sprawling epic. Um, but I think ultimately I, I, I'm going to go with uh, with Vulcan on this one. I think you've, you've convinced me that that uh, the core of that emotional story is, is quite compelling, even beyond the spectacle and the sprawl of yeah. Apollo's life story. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, I think. Uh, the more I went into it, I actually think even the, the straight life story could be interesting when I, when I, when I realized it had the same uh, story as Rudolph the Red Nose Rainbow. <laughs> and, in which case, maybe that, that version could have been Claymation. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> Claymation story of, of, of Vulcan. Uh, but, I, but I think, uh, you know, the, the, um, the one that is inspired by Succession, Vanity Fair kind of takes it. So, you know, um, I think I'm going to go with... Uh, with Vulcan in that one as well. So, so we still wind up with the three to two. We still another three to two. Well, yeah, um, getting pretty close, but uh, the winner is on points is Apollo. Apollo. And, Not a knockout uh, blow, but uh, no. on points. Yeah. On rounds. And, and, and uh, do we want to affirm that? Uh, you know, I don't, I don't see any, any real reason to, to go against it. Um, 
you know, having somebody with that power over Z's at this point, you know, really like the, Yeah, it's the it's the uh, it's the ace in the hole when it comes down to to creating immediate value for us right now. I mean, considering what this guy pulled off in his first ten minutes of life, right? I can only imagine his first ten minutes of, of return to fame uh, if we were to give Back him the, the golden goat yeah. at the end of the season. Well, we'll find out if we do, right? But as, right. For, as for now, that's another episode in the books. That's episode three. Uh, our thanks once again to the great Andy Snow, Chicago-based DJ, Andy Snow, dot DJ, yes. who is behind our theme music. Very excited to announce that uh, the full version of the God versus God theme will be available on Spotify on February 11th. So a couple of weeks, likely after this episode appears, we will let you know when that's fully available. And front to back, it's a lovely piece of music. We only hear little clips of it in, in right. the context of the show, but really, really, uh, really something. So thanks to Andy for that. We are now available uh, all over the place. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. So Pod get in there. Or, you know, Pod B, yeah, that too, sure. I guess. Yeah. So get in there, like, subscribe, leave a review if you like to. Um, we'd love to incorporate your feedback in future episodes. Definitely. You can follow us on Twitter, God versus God Pod. Our website is God versus God. Dot com. We're also on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. There is no TikTok channel, Andrew. And uh, oh. <laughs> I think the fact that our, our genre works really well in, in these discrete 90 minute chunks. Yeah, probably. That's, that's, a, that's, about a, that's about a half a TikTok. That's right? a, <laughs> we would we would probably break TikTok with, with just the sheer amount of ones and zeros. So we'll probably stay away from that one. Always a pleasure, my friend. Thank you for another yes. another riveting episode. And for the rest of you, thanks for listening. And we will see you next time uh, in episode four, coming around the bend, God versus God. All right, see ya. See ya.